Good evening, everyone. Can you all hear okay? Okay. So before I begin, I'd like to bow to my teachers and mentors, Bob and Mary Grace and Jason and Marcy, my fellow teachers too. It's really a pleasure to be up here with them. And to all of you at IRC who helped to make this incredible retreat center a reality, a beautiful reality too. It feels like such an honor to be here. And to all of you, without you, we couldn't have this retreat. We couldn't hold it. There'd be no one to talk to (laughs) and no one to listen. So thanks for coming. So I wanted to know how you were doing. This is the second full day of retreat. Yesterday, Bob talked a little bit about being in the swamp. Or maybe that was Mary Grace. I can't quite remember. But anyway, maybe you're still in the swamp. Maybe you're still feeling really tired or or, uh, restless or agitated. Who knows what? Is that bad? I don't think so, actually. You know, you've actually been welcomed here with all of your stuff. We didn't ask you to leave any of it behind. There were no requirements at all to leave any of your past problems, your current problems, your emotional upset, your physical discomforts. You weren't to leave that at home. You couldn't. You brought it with you, and it belongs here, because all parts of you belong here. And as we've said so many times, there's nothing that's outside of the circle of what belongs in your meditation practice. You can turn toward anything. Anything can be worthy of your focus, and anything can be your teacher. So I did hear today in the group interview that there were some people who were feeling distress, both emotional and physical. There was discomfort, and there was fear and anxiety, scattered attention. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It happens all the time. I think it takes us a while to feel safe. Safe in a space, safe in our own skin. So no wonder. So let's just take a moment to close your eyes and check in. How is it just at this moment, right now? What's the condition of your body? your mood, what's that like? You realize, of course, if we checked in five minutes from now, you'd have a different answer. So we'll have to keep that in mind. So, you finish the second day, and who knows what'll happen tonight? Who knows what'll happen tomorrow? Whatever you came here with, whatever you came to this retreat, thinking it would be, well, maybe you've already discovered it's different. 
And that's our teacher too, finding out what really is and exploring it. So uh, we are going to be exploring Vedana tonight. That's the Pali word for feeling. And before I actually go into that, I want to talk about Vipassana, about the word itself. We used to be Vipassana Santa Cruz, now we're Insight Santa Cruz, and Insight is actually a good translation for Vipassana. But I think you'd like to know about the derivation of the, especially the part V-I, V. It's, a, it's connected to dis, D-I-S, as a as a um, as a word as the prefix for words that we use in English, and it can have a few different meanings, and um, a couple of them are related to vipassana. The first one is apart, and it means sorting things out, delineating, separating strands of experience. And so that's what we're really doing in this practice. We're constantly separating things so we can see them more clearly. When we work with um, the Four Noble Truths, we separate what is suffering from the causes of suffering. We separate the ending of suffering from the path. And we know all the different parts of the path <coughs> of, of, um, of the Four Noble Truths the threefold part where we we separate kind of the practices of integrity and practices of concentration and the practices of wisdom. And then there are further divisions within that. We also, in there are a lot of separations in the teachings on dependent origination, which is kind of a detailed description of suffering, how it arises, how it comes to be, and how it ends. So there's also what we have been working on since we've been here, the Satipatthana, the four foundations. We learn what is body, what is feeling, what are, what is mind, thoughts and emotions, and what are the dharmas, the contents of the mind. We're able to see those as differences and distinct. And the same with I'm, I'm, the ones I'm mentioning are all very related to, to Vedna. And the five aggregates, which is how we construct a solid sense of self. That's all divided into parts, too. So we can see it on that level. We can also see it on the level of just separating one sense experience from another sense experience. So the VI in Vipassana means to separate, to pull apart your strands of experience. The other meaning of it is as an intensifier, something that penetrates to see what wasn't obvious before. Um, So this is where we use our concentration to really soak into experience just like ink on a wet sponge. We penetrate our experience. We hold it there for some time. And we see what wasn't obvious. As an example, um, a white light 
white sunlight. It looks white or kind of yellowish, but we know if we see that light through a prism, it breaks into all the different colors, all the different frequencies. Those were always there, but we just didn't see them before, except under certain circumstances of greater intensification. And the same is true, actually, if you've ever tried this, with your computer screen or a TV. You can hold a magnifying glass to it, and what looks like a white screen becomes pixelated color, yellow and blue and green and red. So you should try that, see see what happens. So that's what happens in our practice. We're seeing not just um, like, like a microscope. A microscope doesn't just make things bigger. It shows you things you didn't know were there. The whole atomic world is something we can't see normally. But with intensification and penetration, we can. And um, so those are just some examples and some interesting parts, I think, of Vipassana, to separate, which really makes things clear. That means you have a lot of sensory clarity. And um, to intensify, to penetrate deeply with concentration. And that really just about defines mindfulness. Separating for clarity, concentrating, and penetrating. Now we're ready to go into Vedana, hopefully. So Vedana is a Pali word. We call it feeling tone. Um, I'm not sure I like the word feeling so much because I think it's really confused with feelings. We have a lot of feeling about feelings. And um, we don't have a better word for it. Maybe you can come up with one. Feeling tone. It comes from uh, a Pali word, vediti, or vedeti, which means to feel and to know. So it has both physical, bodily elements and mental elements to it. Remember, the first foundation was the body. So this is not exactly the body, although it's sensed in the body. And the third foundation is going to be the mind. And it's not really the mind. It's the forerunner of mind. It's like, it's much more subtle. This feeling is much more subtle than emotion. That's what it seems like it would be close to. Feeling and feelings. It's more subtle. It's the first hint, the first whisper of an emotion. The first impact. What's interesting about it is when it's not observed, when you're not ready to really see this this feeling, it moves very quickly into grasping, into, into like, dislike, and, and grasping, which is a form of suffering. When it is known, there's a great potential for experiencing freedom, an ending of suffering, actually. 
So feeling tone, hmm, it's an internal response. And it's something that's known. It's not a thinking about. It's not a figuring out at all. It's something like a felt sense. So the feeling tones that we talk about are pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And before we go any further, as we were sitting, I decided to have my eyes open, which I often do. I often meditate with eyes open. I highly recommend it. And there was beautiful sunlight coming through, just a shaft. And there was sun in shadow, and there was a flickering. It was quite beautiful. It was very pleasant. I started making a short inventory of the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral things that were happening. And um, there was a pleasantness in the quiet of the room. It was quite lovely. Seeing all the different figures, your bodies, like statues, quiet, quiet statues, was kind of neutral. It wasn't pleasant or unpleasant for me. And I got waves of some unpleasant when I started feeling a little nervous about giving this talk. So all things were there. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. So just, if you could for a moment again, close your eyes and see if you could recall, either within your practice this evening or within your day, if you can recall any events that you would call pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And like the ones I gave an example of, they can be most ordinary. The more ordinary, the better. I hope you were able to come up with something and if you didn't that's okay too we really live in a sea of impressions many sensory impressions and from those we attend to only a few and of those some are pleasant some are unpleasant some are neutral So I mentioned, uh, we'll come back to this, I mentioned um, that there were a lot of teachings that Vedana shows up in. Lots of teachings. As I said, the Four Noble Truths, Dependent Origination, here in the Satipatthana, the Five Aggregates, which I think I'll take a little detour and talk about for just a minute. And lots of other Suttas, too. Lots of other discourses. So I love the word aggregate, the five aggregates, and I'll tell you why. This is the teaching about how we really aren't exactly what we think we are. We are a misperception. 
it's really easy to, you know, feel the body and to look in the mirror and see a, what looks like a solid shape and and to think of oneself as a thing. We seem to be thing-like, don't you think? We look kind of solid. If we did have a strong microscope, we'd see we're not a thing. We've got a lot of stuff dancing around. And as Bob said, we're only 10% thing anyway. 10% human thing anyway. And the rest of us is only bacteria and fungi and God knows what else. A lot of stuff. But anyway, we're really dancing molecules. But we can't see it. But the Buddha divided it a little differently. He divided it into form, any material form, including the body, feeling, there comes Vedana, perception, thoughts, which he called mental formations, and consciousness. But what we do with all, that's not a problem that there are all these separate things. They all interact. They all have a function. We have a function sometimes as a unified whole. Our problem isn't that there are all these different parts. The problem is that we tend to hold on to each one of those parts and we call it me, I. It's me. I am my feelings. I am angry. Even our language supports that. I am hungry. I am this kind of a person. So we, we kind of construct this self. Kind of. We kind of can't get out of constructing the self. It's the hardest thing in the world, it seems, to deconstruct. One thing that I like is that um, the name aggregate, it's called lots of other things too. It's called the five heaps, the five piles of bricks, the five khandas, that's the Pali word. But I really like aggregate, and the reason is it's got, um, it has a geological um, comparison. An aggregate is something, it's a way of making concrete. It starts with cement, which is usually limestone, water, sand, crushed gravel, rocks of different sizes and shapes, and it's mixed together. And it starts out being soft, but it hardens in time. It's very useful. It's very very good substance as concrete. But concrete is just a concept. It's just another label, because really we know it had all those different parts. And you could still break it apart and see some of those parts. And then it wouldn't be concrete anymore if we could really break it apart. And we do the same thing with ourself. We cement together all those parts and we harden. We harden. We think we're separate. We think we're independent and unique. And we think we're permanent. And everything in our experience actually points to this not being true. But we have what's called ignorance. Blindness. We don't want to see that. So we keep going around as if we are 
independent, unique, permanent, everlasting selves that are separate from everybody else. So feeling is in that too. And um, you might ask, why are there so many different teachings that um, and practices and guidances that the Buddha offered working with Vedana isn't one enough. And of course it would be that the Buddha in his wisdom and his compassion wanted to make sure he reached all of us. We don't all get it the same way. We don't all learn the same way. That's another assumption we have, that we should all be able to learn. There's a lot of shoulds. Um, David Eagleman, a neuroscientist, says, our brains are as different as our faces and our physical bodies. I kind of find that fascinating. And we don't all learn the same way. So the Buddha actually gave lots of different teachings And some you really can connect with. And some might leave you cold. I happen to like Vedana a lot, and I'll tell you why. It's been incredible for me as a personal practice. And I'll tell you the secret, too. Mary Grace said the other night that the Satipatthana was the direct path to awakening, And within the direct path of awakening, Vedna is the super quick direct path to awakening. (laughs) It's the secret teaching that nobody's told you about before. It's the one you've been waiting for, the really esoteric one. (laughs) It's actually quite ordinary. (laughs) And that's the beauty of it. It's really ordinary. And all of us can do it. So we start with experience, and um, we have to know our experience for sure. Ajahn Sumedho tells a story about knowing honey. If you've never tasted honey, how would you explain to somebody what honey is? You know, would you say, well, it's sweet? You say, oh, you mean like sugar? No. Um, and it's kind of yellow to dark brown. Oh. And and somebody might tell you the whole botanic history of it, like, or, you know, bees pollinate flowers and they get some of the pollen caught on their legs and hair and they eat some of the pollen and nectar and then they go back to their hives and they throw it up and that's what they make <laughs> honey out of. That's what honey is. <laughs> now you know what it is. <laughs> Uh, no, no, don't know what it is. Um, you could give the chemical formula for it. So oh, we have all these ways of explaining things, and none of them make sense. You have to know it yourself. You have to taste it. Once you taste honey, nobody has to tell you anything about it. You know it. And we're actually being asked to do that with all of our experience, to deeply know it. And one of the ways we know, or the only way we know the world, is through our senses. 
our senses of sight, sound, touch, smell. Did I say taste? Taste or touch and thought. The mind is the other sense organ that most people don't include in the list of senses. So we do have sense organs, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, skin, and the mind. And we have a consciousness that is particularly cued to that sense. And they would say, eye consciousness. For us, we might talk about that as the optic nerve that goes into the brain, or ear consciousness, or taste consciousness, or um, smell consciousness, or mind consciousness. These are all the different kinds of consciousness that are capable of receiving the information. So we have the sense organ, we have the consciousness, and then there is some object. There's something in the visual field. So that object, the eye, and the consciousness all have contact, and they're seeing. That's your sense of seeing. It needs all of those to make seeing happen. Eye consciousness only can know visual sights. It can't know sounds. That seems pretty obvious. And so on with the rest of them, too. And as I said before, we choose things out of a sea of impressions because there are, I don't know how many different forms of stimulation happening at the same time. And we only look at some of them. Why only some? Why can two people walking down a forest trail have two completely different experiences? One is seeing plants, the other one's looking at the sky, another is listening to bird sounds. It depends on what you attend to as to what you know. And what you attend to is also conditioned by your past experience, by your intention, and your present condition. So with this contact, this sense contact, there arises at the same time feeling, vedna. You have no control of it. It's not something you can make happen or not make happen. It arises. It's not your fault. You could have all unpleasant feeling. And it's not your fault. It's nothing you're doing. It's just happening because of causes and conditions. And it also is not who you are. Remember that part in the khandas or the aggregates, the five heaps? Vedna feeling showed up there too. It's not who you are. You may think it's who you are, but it's not. So I'm going to read a definition of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral that comes from the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the books from the Pali Canon. And there's there's a good amount of repetition in the any of the suttas, the discourses from the teachings, because it was an oral tradition. 
And people memorize things by having it repeated a lot. So you'll get a flavor of the language if you haven't heard it before. There are three kinds of feeling. Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neither pleasant nor painful feeling. Whatever is experienced physically or mentally is pleasant and gratifying is pleasant feeling. Whatever is experienced physically is painful and hurting is painful feeling. Whatever is experienced physically or mentally as neither gratifying or hurting is neither pleasant nor painful feeling. Pleasant feeling is pleasant in remaining and unpleasant in changing. Painful feeling is painful when remaining and pleasant when changing. Neither pleasant nor painful feeling is pleasant when conjoined with knowledge and painful when devoid of knowledge. We could also say awareness instead of knowledge. So when what they're calling neither, which we also sometimes call neutral, is joined with awareness, it's pleasant. And when it's not joined with awareness, it's unpleasant. This is a really interesting area for us to explore. Because what can happen is that you get hijacked. We all get hijacked. We don't stay with the feeling tone. There's nothing wrong with feeling tone. You didn't make it happen. You can't control it. It just arises with experience. But we have this very strong tendency to move toward like, to move toward dislike, and we don't stop there. If you like it, you want more. Ah, yeah, that looks good. I want more and I want it to last. And if it's unpleasant, you want it to end. You want to get rid of it. Get it away. It's a very natural tendency. And if it's neither, there's a tendency to not notice, to tune out, and to actually be in delusion. Not to notice. Not to notice what's happening, losing awareness entirely. So, what can you do about this? <laughs> we will talk about ways of practicing. But here's something from, um, from the Vedana Samyutta, where feelings are compared to winds coming from different directions. Winds may be sometimes warm and sometimes cold, sometimes wet and sometimes dusty. Similarly, in this body, different types of feelings arise. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes neutral, sometimes unpleasant. Just as it would be foolish to contend with the vicissitudes of the weather, one need not contend with the vicissitudes of feelings. Vicissitudes just means changeability, alternation. And contend, of course, is to fight with. So you don't need to fight with the alternation of feeling. Contemplating in this way, one becomes able to establish a growing degree of inner detachment in regard to feelings. 
a mindful observer of feelings, by the very fact of observation, no longer fully identifies with them and thereby begins to move beyond the conditioning and controlling power of the pleasure-pain dichotomy. So again, we don't need to identify with any of the feelings. They don't have to become who we are. And we're not stuck in them. And there's no reason to, to mess with them. But we do all the time. When I said we get hijacked, by that I mean we move into greed, wanting more, aversion, pushing it away, or tuning out and delusion. And actually, those are part of the definition of suffering, clinging, grasping. And remember, part of what, or all of what the Buddha said he taught is, I come to teach suffering about suffering and the end of suffering. And suffering is often mistaken by people who might not know about the practice or misunderstand it. It's noble. The reason these are the noble truths and it's the noble truth of suffering is because it could go in one of two directions. The suffering that you experience could either just cause more misery or it could be a way of propelling you toward finding freedom. And if that's what it does, it's very noble indeed. So I think that probably you're here, whether you know it or not, because you've heard that call. There may have been some discomfort or disappointment or uncertainty, as some of the monks like to call suffering, in your life that was difficult to deal with, and you wanted to know, how do I work with this? How can I come to a place of less suffering, less discomfort, dis-ease? So there's good news and bad news. The good news, of course, is there's a way. But it's not about getting rid of discomfort. It's not about getting rid of unpleasantness. It's not about grabbing on to pleasantness or only holding on to the joyous. It's about going through all of it, right through the middle. It's not around. It's not under. Not over. It's through. I teach preschool, and as I was just saying that, I was thinking, there's a, there's a, a game we play, going on a bear hunt. <laughs> and there are a lot of obstacles. This is just like us. There are lots of obstacles that present themselves. And um, there's a refrain, you can't go over it. And the kids are repeating, you can't go under it. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. That's what we're doing. We're going on a, We're going right through it because it's the only way. And when you get through it, sometimes you get mucky in the swamp, the swamp that we've all gone through. You have to get dirty and deal with whatever it is. 
And it may seem yucky, but really, it's got good result. It really does. So when we don't acknowledge our pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings, we get hijacked. We moved in, we move into suffering really quickly. And we've all experienced this a million times. I know I have. But we can stop. We can stop right there at the feeling level. We don't have to go further. We really don't. There's a separation right there between pleasant and greed, between unpleasant and aversion, between neutral and um, delusion. And that's what we are going to investigate in our practice. And I'll give you some ways of doing that. By doing that, we become much more curious. And then, rather than react, we we practice with it. We allow it. We open to it. While we were meditating, before we started, I was, I've been doing a lot of practice with feeling, but just feeling the energetic flow, because that's what actually all this is. It's an energetic flow, and some of it's really uncomfortable, some of it's pleasant, some of it doesn't register. But if we can feel it in the body at that level, that's all it is. And then to experience that, just that energetic flow, just to be aligned with what your experience really is, is pleasant. Mm -hmm. It's pleasant, even if it was based on pain and discomfort. Pain and discomfort is one of the best templates I know. It also encourages an intuitive mode of knowing. It's not analytical. It's not thinking about. It precedes all of that. Thoughts are in the next foundation. But you know, we do jump. We do do go into emotions. We do go into thoughts. And so what do we do then? This is, to do this practice is, and to stay with just the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, you could say it's like the breath, because your instructions for breath is when you notice you've gone off, you come back. So when you notice, oh my gosh, I'm already into, you know, emotions, I'm already into a story about it, (coughs) it's okay. You do the same thing. You have an opportunity to come back and just see what the feeling tone is, how it registers in your body. Mostly you're going to find it, as you would with emotions, in this part of your body, from the face to the groin in the front. And there are two reasons for that. One is that all of us, either ill-advised or well-advised, stood up on two feet. We used to be on four, like other intelligent animals, but when we stood up on two feet, we have exposed all of our vital organs, and so we're vulnerable. This is a very vulnerable area. And so when you feel something, it registers very often in this part of the body. You also have your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system right in the front, too. One is responsible for 
getting things going like fear and the others responsible for calming things down. It's all a network right in the front of the body. So, here's some ways of working with it. Oh, first of all, just to notice the presence of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You can actually, in your practice, in your formal practice, you can do this. And you also can do this when you're out in life. This practice is definitely meant to be done out in life. So this is just noticing their presence. You can just decide, I'm just going to work on pleasant right now and see how that is in my body and allow pleasant things to come. Or you can look at things outside. It's easy to do. You look at the flowers, you look at the trees, you look at the birds or the sky, and just let it register. Just let it register and see how that is and be willing to let it go. You can take one at a time or you can kind of free float between the three of them. Just randomly as you experience one or another. Just notice it. Let it register. And as I said, since we're Vipassana is about penetrating, we want to notice what it is. This is the pulling apart the strands of experience. We want to know if it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We want to know where you're feeling it in the body. And you want to hold your attention to wherever it is until it disappears. And so that's the penetration. You also can notice the arising and passing. These are both suggestions from the Satipatthana itself. The arising and passing. So you notice, especially, you notice it's arising and it's passing. And uh, Nayanapanaka Tara says it's really easiest to separate pleasant from greed if you notice the moment of gone the moment it disappears so if you're noticing arising and passing feel the pleasant feeling maybe I feel it right here in my diaphragm and um, it's fading, fading, fading gone he says that's an important place to notice so you can try that out too you can take one at a time, if it's easier to start that way, or you can notice as they they arise. And neutral would be the most difficult to do because it's the most subtle. And so he suggests that you do this by inference. There's no pleasant, there's no unpleasant, there must be neutral. And it would, the moment of gone for that would be when something pleasant arises or something unpleasant arises. All sense impressions, all experience, leave their impressions in the body. So they're to be found somewhere in the body. So those are some ways of dealing with it. 
So you know, the results of this kind of practice are that you can stay with pleasant, you can enjoy it thoroughly. This is not a a teaching that says, don't enjoy pleasant. Enjoy it completely. Be, Be willing to let it go. And don't need to have more. You're actually needing to, you're wanting to make it last or, or needing to have more takes you out of the experience of the pleasant itself. In other words, if you're eating a delicious piece of chocolate and think, hmm, oh, I had some good chocolate last week too. I, that takes you right out of the experience. You're no longer experiencing the pleasant. So, allow yourself to be there without having to have more. And, you'll have appreciation with contentment. And with unpleasant, don't have to get away from it. This can teach you endurance and patience and can open the door to compassion for yourself and others. And with neutral, you don't have to check out. You don't have to Um, tune out. You can become curious. What is this about? And just a feeling. And it really is a lovely, peaceful state of mind with a lot of ease. And it's said to be a companion of equanimity. Equanimity is a real balance of mind. It's where things kind of come and go the difficult, the easy, the joyful, the sorrowful, and you have kind of a balance with it. You're feeling it fully, but you're not tossed about like the wind. So, I hope that you will try out the practice It can be a companion practice to breathing, where you can try it out on its own. And um, it is the place where suffering ends. If you can stay just with pleasant, if you can stay just with neutral, if you can stay just with unpleasant, it is a non-suffering state. Maybe you expected non-suffering to be something different. It's a non-suffering state. And that's called cessation. Naroda. Nibbana. It doesn't mean it's permanent. It might last for a second or two. But you've all had the experience a million times. And now it's just time to really notice. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.